Amen. You may be seated. If you would, bow with me in prayer, and then we're going to look at God's Word together this morning. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time that we have together together. We thank you uh, for this beautiful day that you have created. We thank you for this place that you've provided that we can gather together. Uh, We thank you for the freedom that we enjoy, that we can gather here together and proclaim your name without the fear of persecution. And we thank you for all these things. We pray this morning that as we open your word, that you would teach us, that you would lead us, that you would guide us, that you would lead us in all truth through your Holy Spirit. And so we just uh, confess this morning, we can't do this without you. So we ask that you would come and you would lead and you would guide and you would teach us. You would apply the eternal truths of your living word to our hearts and our lives and that we would leave here having seen you more clearly. We thank you for all that you've done for us, all that you will do. uh, and, And we pray all these things in Jesus name. Amen. Um, I don't know how many of you have seen uh, the movie Signs. It came out, like I think, about 15 years ago. It was M. Night Shyamalan. You know who that is? He, he does all these big twists and stuff. Not that great of a movie. You don't need to see it if you've not seen it. But there's one scene in that movie that I'm thinking of in particular that's very, very poignant. It's kind of like this, this heavy emotional scene in the midst of this movie. And, and in the film, uh, Mel Gibson stars in it, and he's the main character, and he's lost his wife. Uh, he's a widower. And during the film, there's a, there's a flashback scene to what has happened with his wife. And she was in this, this uh, uh, wreck in which a car hit her. And uh, the, the way they lay the scene out doesn't really matter. It's not all that important. But what comes across is she's going to die in just a few moments. And so they actually ask the husband to come out to talk to her at this scene, knowing that there's no way she's going to live. And so the scene is it's really, really intense. And they come and she's telling, they're telling each other how much they love one another. They have small children and the wife's saying, you need to take care of the kids and you need to make sure you do this and do that. And it's just back and forth. And when you watch the movie, it's a really, really hard scene to watch. It's really gut wrenching to think through that. And, and it's hard when you watch her, at least when I watched it and I thought about it, is you immediately go to what would I say to my closest loved ones if I was in the same situation? What would I try to articulate in just a few, few moments, knowing if you just had a few moments to live or even hours or a day, what would you say? What would you tell them in those moments? What would you try to get across if you just had a limited time and you knew that's all you had, either to your spouse or to your kids or your grandkids or whatever it may be? What would you say in those moments? And I want you just to think about what would you try to get across in that? It's a little bit of a morbid thought, but it's also a good thing for us just to stop and think like what is most important? What would I want to get across to others if I just knew I had a few moments left? And I start there this morning because we're going to start a new series just for a couple of weeks leading up to Easter. Uh, we'll end with this series on Easter morning and then we'll start a new one in April. But what we're going to do just uh, today and the next couple of Sundays is really look at the last few hours of Jesus's life. And the scene that I just set before you that took place in that movie is a lot like what's happening with Jesus and his disciples in those last few hours of his life. Jesus knew he was going to the cross. He knew he was going to lay his life down. He had told them this over and over, and he kept saying it to them, and they didn't understand it all. They didn't get it. They were totally missing everything he was telling them because they really couldn't understand from their own worldview that he was actually going to die. And so Jesus is instructing them and teaching them and telling them up in those last moments, knowing that he's about to be taken away, nailed to a cross and crucified, and they're going to see all this happen. And he knows that they don't understand it. And so what we're going to look at is just the last few hours, some of the things that Jesus teaches in those moments. 
right before he's going to go to the cross the last few hours. And so we're going to pick up this this morning and look at what Jesus teaches in the upper room. Uh, This is hours before he will go to the cross. He goes to the cross at 9 a.m. on Friday morning. This is Thursday night that we're going to be looking at what we often refer to as the Last Supper. Uh, Sometimes we talk about the teaching that Jesus does at that time as the upper room discourse because they go into this room together in Jerusalem and he lays out all kinds of things for them. And so we're going to look at that this morning and think on those things together, what he says in those last few hours. But there's some background you need to know before we do. They have no understanding that he's about to die, even though he said it over and over and over again. And part of the reason is their understanding of the Messiah is the Old Testament lays it out. The Jewish leaders of the day, the religious leaders, Jesus' disciples, everyone around him had an understanding that the Messiah was going to come and he was going to set up his kingdom right then and there and be with them forever. And so whenever Jesus says, I'm going away, they're going to deliver me over to die. They're all like scratching their heads going, that doesn't make any sense. In fact, he says this in John chapter 12. He says, when the son of man is lifted up, he tells them, I'm going to be lifted up. And John tells you, he's saying the way he's going to die, talking about being lifted up on the cross. And they say to them, it says, the crowd said, when they heard, we have heard out of the law that the Christ will remain forever. How can you say the son of man must be lifted up? They just say to him, that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't compute. How can you be the Messiah and say that this is going to happen? And so nobody could understand what he was saying. In fact, the very first time Jesus tells the disciples, if you know this story, he tells them, I'm going to be delivered over and they're going to be beaten and tortured. And this is what's going to happen. I'm going to die. And you know what Peter says? Lord, it will never be right. It's one of a couple of times that Peter rebukes Jesus, right? That's not going to happen. It's not going to happen like that. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He tells them. Like you're missing this altogether. But we're sometimes too hard on Peter. But Peter's understanding was this is what Scripture teaches. And I'm rebuking you with what God's word says. And so they're totally missing it in all these ways. And so I want us to think about this picture of what Jesus teaches them in those moments where knowing full well that they don't see it, knowing he's about to go to the cross in a few hours. What does he say? In those moments. And so we're going to look together today at just a few verses in Luke 22 and then a few verses in John 14. And let me just tell you, those are parallel passages that both take place in the upper room. So this is both in the same uh, hour, a couple of hours they're in there together with Jesus. It's when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. Right before that, he washes the disciples' feet, and then he kind of lays out these different things for us. So that's kind of the scene of where we are. If you want to flip with me to Luke chapter 22, if you're using the Bible that looks like this in the pews, it's on page 573. So we say every week, if you're here, you need a Bible or you know someone who does, that's why these are here, please take it. That's our gift to you if you, if you need one or know someone that needs a Bible. So 573. Luke chapter 22, but here's what I want us to see. First, there's a huge misunderstanding that the disciples, they're missing it all together. And we're going to see how that's kind of fleshed out in Luke 22. And then the second thing I want us to see is what Jesus says is the reality of God's kingdom. And then lastly, there's a power and a peace when we get what Jesus is saying. But when we miss it, and we often do, much like the disciples do, it causes all kinds of problems. And so I want us to look at that together. And so let's begin in Luke chapter 22 in verse 24. And so here they are in the upper room. And this is what the disciples say. A dispute also arose among them 
as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And so just stop right there for a second. In the upper room, as they're there together, the disciples are arguing over who's going to be the greatest in God's kingdom. They're saying, like, who's going to be the right-hand man? And you've got to put it in their understanding of what they thought was going to happen. They thought Jesus was going to lead a revolution and we're going to overthrow Rome and we're going to get rid of the occupying government that was so horrible. And he's going to be the king and the kingdom's ushering in and I want to be the guy right next to him. And so they're arguing over it. And this was their misunderstanding. And you see this all the way through whenever Jesus starts to talk about this. And they're totally missing it. And I want you to think about how badly they're missing it. Right? right before this, most scholars believe right before this is when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And he got down in this act of humility and he scrubbed their dirty, nasty feet. Something that uh, in their culture, it would have been offensive for Jesus to ask the disciples to wash his feet. That's how offensive it was. But yet he does that and he gets down and he washes their feet. And then he tells them how I'm the one among you who serves and washes your feet and you should do likewise. And then right after that, this group of boneheads is now arguing over who's going to be the greatest. It's like, did you hear anything he just said? Right? And so look at what he says to them in verse 25. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is the one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at the table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves? And so Jesus says, you guys are messing it. Like, what are you talking about arguing over who's going to be the greatest? I've just told you that this is the way my kingdom works. I'm showing you this is how I am here to be the one who serves, to give my life a ransom for many. All these things that he says over and over and over again, and they're still arguing over who's going to be the greatest. And you can almost feel the, the tension of just Jesus being frustrated, like, oh, how are you missing this? How are you not seeing that this is the case? And we see this all the way through. The disciples are always kind of jockeying position, for position, and it comes out of their misunderstanding of what Jesus would do. You see it in Mark 10. Uh, James and John come to Jesus and they ask if they can be like at his right hand when they come into the kingdom. They actually just outright ask. Right? They go right to it. Like, can we be there? You know, Jesus says to them in, in, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. And he says, you don't have a clue what you're asking. And then the next thing he says is, can you drink the cup that I drink? Now, they're not understanding any of this. What we know, actually, Luke's going to hit on this next week. Here's a, a trailer of what we're going to talk about in the Garden of Gethsemane next week. But the cup that Jesus is talking about is the cup of God's wrath as he takes on the sin of the world. That's what he's talking about. And we know that from the Old Testament and all these other passages. And so Jesus says, you want to be at my right hand. You don't know what you're asking. You don't know what's about to happen. And so we see this severe misunderstanding among the disciples about what this looks like, about what God came to do and how his kingdom works and how that works out. He's saying it's not lobbying for power. This is not a power play. We're not going to overthrow governments. And now I'm going to take my position as king and you're going to be at my right hand and we're going to make <clears throat> laws and do all these. Things. He goes, it's not going to work that way. You guys have totally missed what I came to do. I've come to lay my life down as the ransom for many and you're missing it. 
And this is the way that would go in the upper room. Jesus is teaching them and he's being gracious and kind and continuing to remind them and show them and they're missing it all together. And so I want you to think about that picture. And we can read this and we can think about like the foot washing moving to this where he says where they're still arguing over who's the greatest and go, man, look at these guys. But how can they keep missing this? How can they be so off? And sometimes we look at the disciples and we think that way. But the truth is we're all a lot like the disciples a lot of the time. We do the same thing. Instead of resting in our identity and who we are in Christ and what he's done for us, we want to take back power and make it all be about what I do. I'd say our hearts get revealed oftentimes with what's going on around us in the world. In fact, right now in our country, we're at this point where it's uh, election season, right? We're ramping up. We've still got months of this to go, unfortunately, and it just keeps going and going, but it gets ramped up all around us. And what happens is when that happens, people get angry and they get divided and they get frustrated and they start to show their frustration and we start to say things like, we've got to get this person elected so we can take back our country. We're going to make this happen. And we start to talk that way. And we start to use that rhetoric all around us all the time. In fact, what will often happen is I'll hear people say, we're going to take back our country for God. Right? Have you ever heard that term before? People like to say that a lot. We're going to take back our country for God. And then I think about what Jesus teaches in the upper room. About laying down your life and serving people. And not being at the one at the table, not jockeying for position, but being the one who gives your life up to serve others. I go, man, those don't seem to really go together. In fact, when we say that term, I'm going to take back the country for God. Right. And we take, we talk about it like taking power and we're going to do this thing. And I think, is God up on his throne reigning over all creation going, oh, no, how am I ever going to take back America? Right? Like, how am I going to do that? Right? No, no, that's not the picture that we have in the Bible. In fact, in Isaiah, it says the opposite. It says nations rise and fall and God sits on his throne and he's in complete control of all of it. But yet we begin to talk that way. And the reason is, is we have the same misunderstanding that the disciples had. We think it's something that we can do in our power. We're going to make this happen. But Jesus says, this is the way my kingdom works. You love and serve others. That's the way my kingdom works. That's what it looks like. And so we miss it and so often in different ways. And so we begin to get very frustrated about it. I want you to think for just a second, if we were to take back our country for God, what would that look like? Well, it would look like what Jesus tells us to do. It would look like serving others and being gracious and being kind and showing what he's like and the way we uh, interact with one another. That doesn't mean, don't, don't misunderstand me, that doesn't mean you never speak the truth. You do speak the truth. There's a great quote in your bulletin about speaking the truth with love. Right? If we speak the truth without love, it's brutal. And if it's love without truth, it's hypocrisy. And so we have to have that balance of both. But we should do it the way Jesus tells us to do it. Graciously and kind and loving and long-suffering. Because that's the way God's kingdom works. And so you see them totally missing that picture here. And Jesus is calling them back to what this looks like. And so flip over with me to John 14, if you would. If you're following along in this Bible, it's just a few pages to the right, page 586. And so the first thing that we have here is they're misunderstanding it. They're not seeing it because they're trying to operate in the same way the world operates. 
We're going to tackle governments and we're going to do it this way and it's going to be top down and this is what it's going to look like. Now look at what Jesus says in John 14. This is in the same few moments. This is probably shortly after the, the episode we just saw in Luke 22, but same room within an hour, right? The same opportunity, same time. And so look at what he says. John 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, but believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And so Jesus says this incredible thing here to, to the disciples. He tells them, don't be troubled. Believe in me. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Here's this picture of what his kingdom looks like. And he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going away. Talking about his death and then his resurrection, the ascension. I'm going to go away, but I'm not going to leave you here as orphans. I'm going to come back for you. All these things that he says in the upper room discourse. And they're not grasping any of it. In fact, you see with what Thomas says how they're not grasping it. Wait, where are you going? Right? He says, you know where I'm going. He goes, no, I don't. Right. You can almost hear Thomas go like, what's the address? How, how are we going to get like, where's the, the kingdom? Where are we going to be operating from? How's this going to work? And he's going, no, 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 that's not how this works. And then he says, but you do know the way it's through me. Jesus says, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the father except through me. This is the way God's kingdom works. And so they're thinking far too small, earthly governments toppling uh, a, 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 a power that's over them. This very real struggles. And Jesus is talking about ending death and sin forever. Jesus is talking about redeeming a people to himself that would have an intimate relationship with God the Father through what he's done. And they're missing it. And he tells them that you come through me and what I I'm going to do for you. And so I want you to think about how does that work? Is it we're going to get mad and get angry and take over? No, you're going to put your faith and your trust in what Jesus does for you as he goes and he takes all your sin on himself and he pays for it. And he gives you a relationship with the father. And in doing so, he gives you everything you desire in governments, in politics, in your family in your love life, in your kids, in everything you're looking for, Jesus says, it's found in me. Now, he gives us good gifts in other ways, but those are there to be signposts to pointing us to the fullness of what we get when we have a relationship with God. So he says, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And Jesus says, this is the picture of the kingdom. This is the picture of everything you're looking for. See, we think far too small. We think bad governments overthrow them. Yes, overthrow bad government, but that still doesn't deal with the issue that underlies it. The sin and the rebellion against God, that's what holds it up in the first place. And Jesus says, I came to deal with that. My kingdom's far greater. And so he tells them, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. And the only way that happens is you put your faith in me and what I've done for you. 
by grace, through faith in Jesus, that is the answer to all our problems. Every single one of them. And that's what he's telling them. And they're all like scratching their heads like, so where's the kingdom going to be? Like, where do we go? And they're missing it. And he's telling them over and over and over. You're going to have this peace and it's going to come through what I've done for you, not through a government. And he's correcting them. And you almost see that it's the, the, the love that Jesus has for his followers in those moments. It's like if your kids are really, really misunderstanding something and you're going, no, 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 just listen to me. It's so much bigger than what you think. And that's what he's telling them over and over. And so he makes this incredibly exclusive claim that we hate in our culture. I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. And no one comes to God the Father except through Jesus. That's what he says. We live in a culture today that hates that. Maybe you don't like the way that feels or sounds. It's incredibly exclusive. Uh, Some people say it's very intolerant. Misuse of that word, but that's a whole nother thing. But we would say those things. And maybe you have that objection or you know somebody that has that objection as Jesus says that. He says the only way you come to the Father is through Jesus and that's it. And we want to say, no, 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 all ways are equally valid. And I don't want to be regressive and I don't want to be intolerant. And so this is what uh, we should say. We should never say that Jesus is the only way. But I want you to think about that. If you have that objection or you know someone that has that objection, think what's behind that. If I say all ways are equally valid and no one can make an exclusive claim, that in and of itself is a very exclusive claim. If I say all ways are equally valid and I hold to that belief, then what I'm saying is that all world religions are wrong. Everybody's got it wrong. That the truth is that God is confusing and he shows himself at different ways and he's contradictory and I'm right. And not only that, if we say that, we're also saying that a Christian can't follow Jesus the way he calls us to follow him because he says he's the only way. Do you understand that? You will meet people that say that and then say it. And maybe you've said it. Maybe you wrestle with that right now. I'm really inclusive and I don't want to be exclusive. And so I say all ways are equally valid. You're doing the exact same thing that you're accusing other people of doing when you do that. That's just a side note, but you will hear that a lot today. And the truth is we all have, all have exclusive beliefs. And so Jesus calls us to this and he says he's the only way. And I want you to think about what that means. He's the only way because he is the only perfect one that has ever lived. Jesus does what we could never do for us. And it's only by grace through faith and what he's done for us that we can be restored to God. That's the heart of what we believe in the gospel. We're saved not because we're good people. We're not saved because we go to church. We're not saved because we have a certain number of quiet times or any of those things. We're saved by grace and what God has done for us and nothing else. It's only what Jesus does for us. And then he gives us his righteousness. And so everything about who we are and the way we enter into God's kingdom is by grace what Jesus has done for us. So here's my question. What would it look like to show the world what God is like if that's what God is like? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If you have known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Do you hear what he's saying? Right? Philip's going, show us the Father. And Jesus is saying, you've seen him. Right? Jesus is saying, when you see me, you see the Father. 
right? Because Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long and you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you hear what he's saying? It's the same thing that like Hebrews 1 tells us. That Jesus is the exact imprint of the very nature of God. When you see Jesus, you see exactly what God's like. Right? So what it tells us, what Jesus says right here. Those are his words and what he tells us. And so what does that look like? What does it look like to show the world what God's like? Look at verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor, nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. He says, I'm going to go and I'm going to finish this work that they're totally misunderstanding. I'm going to take your sins. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to give you my righteousness by grace through faith. And then I'm going to come and dwell inside of you. And I begin to remake you. And I begin to turn you more and more into my likeness. And then he says in verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do and the father may be glorified in the son. And so I want you to think about what Jesus is saying. Just like the disciples they want to say, no, we're going to overthrow, we're going to take power, we're going to do this thing, we're going to be at your right hand, let's go, let's march on Rome, here we are, we're ready. And Jesus goes, no, just stop, that's not how this goes. We do this exact same thing. We get angry and frustrated and we're going to do this and we're going to fix this. And Jesus is going, no, that's not what it looks like. That's not what God's like. He says, when you see me, you see exactly what God's like. And when you put your faith in me, I come and take residence in you by the spirit and I begin to remake you into my presence and in my image. And you're looking just like me. you're going to begin to live that way. And you're going to show people what God is like by the way you live this out. And that's what he says over and over and over in the upper room discourse. Right. Who's the greatest? Stop. You're going to serve people. Peter gets so angry, you will never wash my feet. And he goes, you don't let me wash your feet, you don't understand any of this, Peter. We're going to wash other people's feet. We're going to be gracious and we're going to be kind and we're going to love people in the way Christ loved us because that is who God is. We say all the time in the church, we're going to glorify God. That's the chief end of man, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Do you know what glorify means? It's a church word we say a lot. It means to show the world what God's like. To reflect back what he's like. And here's what God's like. He's gracious and he's loving and he's long suffering and he's patient and he's kind and he's good. And he loves us so much that he would lay down his life for us. And our answer is we're going to get really angry at people. I read this over and over this week. I was so heartbroken by what I see in our country and the answers that we act like are going to fix things. If we just get the right politician in office, then we'll take back our country. No, we won't. 
It is only going to be the power of the Holy Spirit working in his people to glorify God the way Jesus shows us. Grace and truth and love for people that magnifies what God is like. That's the way God works. And that's what Jesus says over and over and over again. We go, yeah, but that's not the way the world works, so let's get angry. Right? And there's Jesus going, no, stop. You're right, that's not the way the world works, but this is how my kingdom works. If we are people that are grace-bought people, everything we have in our life, everything that we are is by what Jesus has done for us and nothing else. How should we respond to other people to show them what God is like? You lay down your life and you love the people around you. And that doesn't mean you never disagree. You speak the truth. And when you disagree, you do it civilly and humbly and graciously and lovingly. And when you still disagree, you go, okay, I'll see you tomorrow. Love you. See you tomorrow. We'll pick this up another day. We don't go to war with people in, in our politics or in the way we think about it. We continue to love and be gracious and kind because that's what Jesus has called us to do. It's exactly what he's saying over and over all throughout this. If you understand what I've done for you and what this looks like, this is how you live it out. Now, here's the incredible part of what he tells us. And it's so hard for us to grasp hold of. And I'm not pointing the finger at anybody. This is me every day. There's so many times I want to be right. And I want to tell people and I'll say, this is the way it is. And this is what it looks like. And get, a, get on board or get out of the way or whatever. It's the sinfulness of my heart that wants to do that. But Jesus goes, no, you're going to love and serve people. But there's an incredible thing that he tells us. Look at verse 25. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. And then he says, peace I leave with you and my peace I give to you, but not as the world do I give to you? Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say that I'm going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I've told you before it takes place, so that when it takes place, you may believe. He knows they don't get it. But he tells them, if you listen to what I've told you and you get what I've done for you, I'm going to give you a peace that transcends the world. And it's not going to be in, in uh, certain leaders or certain governments. He said, when you understand what I'm saying, you're going to realize that I'm on my throne reigning. He'll get to the end of chapter 16 and he'll say, I have overcome the world. And so when things seem to be falling down around you, he goes, I got it. And the way my kingdom works is you continue to love and be gracious and serve people in the midst of that. You go, yeah, but that's not how the world works. And Jesus goes, but that's how my kingdom works. That's who I am. That's what it looks like. And so the power he gives us to do that is through his spirit. We can't do this on our own. In and of myself, I'm going to get angry and I'm going to want to take power and I'm going to want to make it happen the way I want to make it happen. And only in the power of the spirit is that ever possible. And if you're struggling about what that looks like, Galatians 5 actually tells you. 
What does it look like to walk in the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So if you're unsure what it looks like, there's your picture. It's what it looks like to walk in the Spirit. And here's the incredible thing that comes with that. The peace I give you and I leave with you is there's a peace of knowing that God's in control. Let not your hearts be troubled. I'm coming back. My kingdom wins. It's going to be revealed in all of creation and you don't have to worry about that. I'm going to do that. And you can rest in that. But there's also a very, very practical part of this. I don't know about you, but in my life, when I get in an argument or I get heated or I get upset or I start to do the things that the, the opposite of walking by the Spirit, basically, I'm miserable. Even if I'm right. Even if I know I'm right. And I get really angry and I'm going to tell you and I'm going to show you and, then, uh, and then, I'm, then I'm miserable. But you know what happens when somebody's ugly to me or, or there's this uh, attention that arises and I have an opportunity to just love and serve them and respond in that way, I go home and it doesn't bother me at all. There's actually a very real peace that comes with honoring God the way he tells us to. And I just want you to think about what our world would look like when we say things like take back the world for God. What if we as the church walked by the Spirit in all these things? In the midst of political ugliness all around us you've got what six months till election you're gonna have all these people and conversations and facebook and different things what if every christian suddenly was just gracious and kind and loving in the midst of that what would that look like it might actually start to change the world maybe just maybe jesus knows what he's talking about but oftentimes we abandon it. We do the same thing the disciples do. We're going to go get it. He goes, no. And so Jesus, what he says to them, is the same thing that we need to hear. It's the same thing our hearts need to hear. Let not your heart be troubled. Trust that I am in control of all this. And now you get to just do what I've done for you. Be gracious and loving and kind and show the world what God's like. That's really good news. <laughs> And I can just rest in that, that I don't have to do all this, but that God is God and I can rest in the midst of that. So let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious good news of your truth. And I pray that you would impress this upon our hearts uh, even today. How opposite so much of what you tell us is the way our world works and how difficult that can be. And how we can easily want to step into these things and begin to look like the world. I pray that you would give us a renewal of, uh, of your spirit and just an understanding, a heart that wants to show the world what you're like in all circumstances and all ways. I pray that you would see fit to use us in that. I pray right here in our body together that this would begin to take place and to happen right where we are right now. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that we are saved by grace through faith. And it's all what you've done for us. And all we can say is thank you for that. We pray that you would continue to remake us into your image, that we might glorify you in all that we say and do. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.